welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast where I, uh, in the past, have talked to legendary musicians, established and uh, new and up-and-coming uh, folk. I would say today's guest, Eric D. Johnson, is very well established, and that song that played us in is from his band, Bunny Light Horseman, and the song is called Deep in Love, and that is Grammy-nominated, and if you are fully aware of who Eric D. Johnson is, then you know he's also the Fruit Bats, that's his other band, who have an album coming out March 5th on Merge Records called Pet Parade, and the single off of that album is called Holy Rose, and I'm a fan of Mr. Johnson's, his uh, music is great, and we talk about many things, and he's also from Chicago, or he spent a lot of time in Chicago, which I am as well. And uh, not sure if we talked about it on the podcast or not, but we did do do drink beer and old style beer from Chicago. Anyway, um, if you are a first time listener and you're here because of Eric, uh, please check out my library. There's a rich, bountiful, plentiful library of interviews with musicians, and even some of my earlier episodes. There's uh, filmmakers and activists and a lot of interesting stuff in my two hundred and something episodes. Um, also, if you uh, if you enjoy this podcast or if you enjoy this episode and you like listening to it, you could also go to become a Patreon subscriber, and you could watch Eric and I talk. And there's extra some extra content in the converse in the the video, and uh, there's always extra content on the Patreon as well as a blog and videos and. Lots of, lots of, lots of extras. So please become a Patreon subscriber. All things Matt Dwyer are in the show notes. Uh, there's a link tree that will take you there. There's a Twitter for this show. There's also my Twitter and an Instagram if that helps you know about uh, previous shows and upcoming guests. And as, as well as in the show notes are all things Eric Johnson. So if you want to go to Bandcamp and buy some of his music, you could just click on that link and it will take you there and you could spend your money on the fine music of the fruit bats. Um, and so, yeah, please. And then my website, thematwire.com, is being revamped, hopefully by the time this episode drops, that it is revamped and more centric towards the podcast. So check that out. And all that being said, thank you for listening, and please enjoy this episode with Eric D. Johnson from the Fruit Bats. Don't you uh, are you well balanced? Or are you more like uh, me, an insane lunatic who thinks everything's going to crumble? Um, I'm a medium insane lunatic. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think to be a singer songwriter, you have to be an insane, a semi insane lunatic. That's not like that's part of the deal. So <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm an insane lunatic. Does the insane lunatic vary? For the singer songwriters, or is it sort of like everybody says about comedians? It's like, oh well, they're all depressed and sad because they're comedians. Is um, it-, it varies. There's definitely, and I I see myself in other singer songwriter types, where I'm just like, oh that fucking guy, and then <laughs> I actually am like, oh wait, that's that guy's me. Um, and then I'm I'm different too. Sometimes I don't know. I don't know what I am. Perspective is so weird. Yeah, I I feel, I don't know, and maybe it's because I'm older now, but I feel like my perspective on who I am and what I was for years are just vastly different. Yeah, it is, and it's like, um, 
I, the thing lately that's been happening to me is that when I think to my, I, I can't remember how I used to feel about things. Um, I always sort of, I have like one view of what, uh, what I, what I thought my outlook was 15, 20 years ago or something. And then I sort of, am like, is that true? Or am I just, <laughs> am I just making that up? It's like anti-nostalgia, you know, where I was, or are we just the same person every day? Like, have we woken up every morning since we were birthed? Are we the same person every single day? I don't know. Yeah. It's hard I was, to say. I was, I think, very nostalgic and very attached to my past and like where I was from. And then one day I was just like, this is all bullshit. Like you're like, I pined for Chicago and like Chicago and that's the greatest city. And, and, and then I was just like, you haven't lived there in 20 years. Like what the fuck do you care about it? So like, I also have not lived in Chicago in 17 years. Um, you left around what? 2000, 2000, 2004, 2004. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's February of 2000 or like March of 2004. I think that's a good time yeah. to get out of Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I love Chicago. I love going back to Chicago. Now I ha- I'm a tourist there now. I, I, I have like fully embraced being a tourist there now and I love it. Yeah. It's, it's like now I want to go there and I want to take the architectural tour boat tour, which I've never done, but I want to do the stuff I poo pooed as a resident. Cause I was like, that's tourist shit. And I'm like, actually it's probably pretty great. <laughs> yeah. It's an awesome city to be a tourist in. And I was the same thing with the tours where I was like, whatever. Um, but yeah, now I'm like, Oh, this city's so cool. I, I don't know. It's great. When, oh, yeah. I was a drunk when I lived there. So I, it was just old dive dive bars was mostly how I spent. <laughs> That's a certain kind of memory too, to have a th- of places too, or non-memory. Yeah. No, it was a series of blackouts. My twenties. Yeah. Did, but you like moved around a lot as a kid, right? Is it that? Yes. Like moved around the Midwest a lot as a kid and I've moved around a lot as an adult too. I've always been, uh, I think I had a sort of a, a slightly nomadic childhood and I've had a, a nomadic adulthood too. And I sort of like that. Do you think they're directly connected? Um, that's a good, I don't know. I also, maybe partly, I also chose a partner 17 years ago, um, incidentally, who's kind of the same. So we, um, which is a good thing. We sort of feed off of each other and we, we pick up stakes a lot. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, it probably has something to do with the childhood, but I have not, uh, I, I can't say I've gone into a deep analysis of that either, <laughs> but sure. <laughs> what was the reasoning for like moving around as a kid? Was like, was it just dad's work? Um, lots of, uh, not to get to, I'm not like just a family up, consistent family upheaval and weird drama, like consistently. So it was moving, um, moving was not like a positive thing. Usually it was, there was a lot of weird leaving in the night kind of stuff, but not, and not, you know, it w- I actually had a pretty happy childhood. I, I will say too, cause I, I think I was always distracted with movies and television and music and just the things that I still love. But, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, we, we, a lot of like weird, uh, 
just weird, weird moving around for sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. Sorry, I'm getting texts and I am, I want to just mute my phone. I thought you so were unprofessional I, of me. I honestly thought you were pouring tea, which I was, I was, <laughs> 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 which I was in a, in respect of. Do you, do you, yeah. did you like with the moving and cause you said you were into movies and music. Do you think there was a connection to that and like, I don't know, because I, I we stayed in the same shitty house my whole life, and I, uh, but and I liked movies, but I couldn't relate to anybody in my neighborhood. But was there uh, that connection, like why you turned to movies and music because you were moving and it was hard to make connections to? Yeah, kids? and I'm I'm not. I should say I'm not. Uh, I was not an introvert either. I went to um, between kindergarten and first grade. The two, those two years, I went to four different elementary schools uh, for kindergarten and first grade, um, which I think was, and, and maybe, and I'm just a fairly inherently extroverted too. So I, it was not like, um, it's not like that story of the kid that moved around a lot and was like the lonely kid inside the house <laughs> reading comic books and stuff. I mean, I was, um, I sort of was that by choice, kind of, a, and I was a latchkey child too. So I, lo- I loved that. Uh, my sister my sister went to a babysitter, but I went home um, at a pretty young age. So I have these really beautiful, fun memories of of that three o'clock in the afternoon, just home alone for two, three hours, um, and just watching TV and reading Mad Magazine, and uh, yeah, just sort of absorbing stuff on my own. So yeah, I, very much a product of that kind of latchkey child, divorced household. Um, kind of culture, which I, I always just get along with those people, but it, it wasn't dark. It was like a, it was still, I still kind of like think about it as a pretty happy time. I usually would make friends at school pretty quick. I was funny and uh, sort of a smart ass and a little bit of a bad kid too. Uh, and the, the uh, other kids like that, like when you mouth off to the teacher and stuff like, um, so I was a, a, like mildly rebellious, I guess you could say, um, which, which like scored me brownie points in new schools. Um, <laughs> I was too terrified to mouth off because I don't know because my dad was terrifying. So authority just scared me. Still does. To the but. yeah. I mean, I had yeah. I like. Um, I I should and again I should say this is all this is all very. Li- I was a light rebel. I wasn't. I wasn't like pulling a switchblade on the teacher or anything. But it was usually just like. I was doing, you know, Eddie Murphy from SNL routines and stuff in class when I shouldn't have been and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, I was, I was obsessed with, with those type of character with the, the Eddie Murphy, Bill Murray type characters in the eighties who were like these self-assured, uh, loners who always had the right thing to say. I I mean, yeah. And I was like nine years old trying to do that probably (laughs) incoherently, but (laughs) I always I wish they would sort of bring that that doesn't really exist in comedy anymore that sort of anti-establishment mouthy like and it seems almost like a ripe sort of climate to have that come back into comedy but what do I know It will I feel like there's a there's a certainly there's an archetype and you and certainly a male archetype usually in comedy that that I, it changes guards every 
decade or so or generation and because it was that then it was like in the early 2000s it was like the idiot man child um yeah sort of hyper masculine idiot man child sort of uh anchor man which I, I like love those movies um but the, those sort of like um yeah idiot like very egotistical idiot man children type characters and then and then I think more Apatow stuff is is, is like the likable kind of Seth Rogen um, type character. I don't know. It'll it'll change, but yes, I want I want that too. Because in our day and age, I'm like, I feel like all the um, like art president and things are it's like the bad uh villains from 80s movies like ted knight from caddyshack is basically running things now um <laughs> where i'm like, it, it, like anyone our age how could you like be into these guys they're they're really they're truly they're like the bad guys from a movie who are gonna tear down your summer camp and put up a <laughs> golf course or something and then you have to but then it's like you, you, you versus the Trump sons. You have to beat them in the canoe race or something. Like, we should just write this. Yeah, I know it's true. It's just right there. It's it's right there for the taking. Yeah, I feel like, and maybe I'm crazy, but I feel like we are not just like that in the terms of comedy. But I feel like in the next couple of years we're going to have a major cultural shift, and I I feel like we're going to go more back to like authenticity because i feel like we've just yeah. like had a a version of the 80s but like on fucking steroids that there has to be a b- backlash on celebrity culture and shallow shitty music if that's wrong for me <laughs> i don't know if that's no, true I, I think it's true and but honestly i think there's a lot of good stuff out right now too yes. i think i think in a way i'm i'm kind of like uh I've been the most open to things that I have been in years as far as music and movie and, and obviously television is incredibly excellent right now as, as good as it's ever been. I, I, I think, uh, for my money. So, um, I'm like, yeah, I do, but I think you're right. I think, I think there's, um, I, I at least, and maybe I'm, maybe I just want this to happen, but I am looking forward to some, I, I feel like there's gotta be a punk rock DIY, um, movement coming soon um and maybe there is and i'm just 44 and i don't know about things <laughs> anymore too there probably is uh, yeah, but uh, i've been thinking like i need to find out a connection to this because i want to witness it if it's going to happen but like i think i'm too old to know anybody <laughs> yeah i think the millennials and I like the millennials a lot as a gender. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm like a, a young Gen Xer. I think I'm the, I'm technically in the last like two years, you could be born to be a Gen X person. I'm not very Gen Xy in some ways. I'm kind of millennial in some way, but um, I, I like that the millennials gave us like good coffee and uh, sort of uh, better food than, uh, than the previous <laughs> generation. But but also it's like, it's kind of, they're kind of a yuppie generation too. When you actually think of it in the eighties context, it's uh they're like a, a fine living kind of thing. And they, they like mainstream things in general and in, in a certain way is the yeah. way I've always looked at it. But um, yeah, I think there's a, there's like a, I think the, the younger generation from them is going to bring a more crusty. Uh, I think there's a more crusty punk rock movement. Yeah. B- uh, bubbling at the surface. Yeah, and I feel bad because I said shitty music, but I guess I meant like content-wise. Like there was just a lot of music about materialism and those kind of things. And I just feel like that the clock on that is running out because I feel like there's now there's a push against materialism and greed and 
I, I yeah, think. I think I think so too. Yeah. I'm uh but I'm I'm a terrible pop culture prognosticator <laughs> too, so I <laughs> I'm just yeah, repeating things I heard other people say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I couldn't tell you who's in the top 10 right now and probably couldn't have since Nirvana was in it. Yeah, I probably don't know either. I mean, if you told me, I would probably recognize most of the names um, because I, tr- I try to keep up on stuff um, because I I am I have to remember that I am in the music biz um, and that... Uh, I like what I like. There's there's so much good stuff right now and so much bad stuff, and that's because there's just so much stuff. Um, it's just easier to make music than it was um, when I started, for better and worse. Um, it's just sort of the that's the project, the, the sort of product of like a, the digital present that we live in is um, it's easier to get stuff out there, which is kind of beautiful and also gives us a lot of garbage. <laughs> Yeah, because I've read a quote where you said it's harder for a younger person to break into music than it was when you were breaking into it. And I was, I, is that- I still think that's true. At least into indie music or whatever the whatever the small um, the small window and version of what I my reality, what I what I know um, for of myself and my friends. Yeah, I think when when the to like expand upon that it was just it was easier than it was it was easier then because i felt like there was um indie labels were still kind of developmental leagues to some extent um you really have to be yeah the kind of long story short on that is you have to be totally developed now to um to like break into it I feel like I made my first record. It was kind of like half done <laughs> sounding, but maybe had some vague promise. And I got signed to Sub Pop, like in the, you know, right in the, at the beginning of their huge comeback. And it was, it was something of a miracle. I, I just think if, if 2001 me, uh, the two, whatever the 2001 version of myself was tried to make something in that same style. Now I would, I would not be getting signed to dead oceans or some, some equivalent label like that, I I would just be, I would be putting stuff out on Bandcamp and hoping that my family heard it. <laughs> yeah, I mean that used to be the aesthetic, especially like in the '80s New York art scene, where it was just like people really just being sh- figuring it out on stage, and I'm which yeah. is kind of exciting. I kind of would like to see that come back, just because out of that comes some kind of raw like it becomes more about energy and intent and all that. Exactly. And that was sort of what I was doing. And I'm, I'm certainly, well, I, I can't say I'm, I came from the, I can't say I was directly influenced by the New York art scene, but you know, I came from the more indie rock um, world, which was really just sort of indirect lineage with that, which was, it was very homegrown and um, there was no thought of, radio being on the radio beyond college radio and it was there was a certain um kind of innocent boutique quality to it that um it doesn't exist anymore because the playing field is so strangely level and the playing field is huge now too so um you can make a record in your if you made a record in your living room back then which i did it sounded like you made a record in your living room and now if you make a record in your living room now it could be like Billie Eilish or like a number one single um again partly because of technology and partly because of just like 
people's angle is different now. Yeah. I mean, I remember buying just CDs with guys, you know, chicken scratch being like, here's the, here's the song list. <laughs> it was like, yeah. And I, yeah, there was something precious and cool. And like, it made it feel like it was of this moment. Yeah. And again, I still think that very much exists. I'm not even, I, when I talk about this and then I, I catch my, I have to like catch myself because I'm like, it just sounds like a, um, back in my day, you know, um, <laughs> type of thing. But there, yeah, there was, um, there was definitely a beauty to that, but it's, there's, yeah, there's always going to, it's, there's a, just different ways to do it, um, for each generation. So, um, but I'm, uh, usually when I talk about getting into the, you know, music world at a younger age, what I'm, how I'm describing it is, is, is not saying that was so great back then. I'm, it's more just saying it's, it's a shock that I got in <laughs> and, uh, and that I'm still doing it. Um, and I, and it's, I'm really happy and, and yeah, just that I, that I was able to sort of, uh, develop myself on a, in a public way, um, back then and, and better, I think in yeah, real time. Was curious just because you've been, you have, you know, like been around since the 2000 and I, I, how do some people, you know, it's a couple albums and then it just sort of, I, I just, how do you challenge yourself or keep vibrant and creating great stuff over it? Cause it, it doesn't happen. I mean, it happens, but it's also a lot of guys just fade away. I don't know. And I've, <clears throat> a lot, I, I've watched a lot of people fade away and people who maybe had, it, it felt at the time were blowing me out of the water in 2003 or something like that. Um, it's, it's partly the cliche of the tortoise and the hare and I'm definitely the tortoise. Um, <laughs> um, and I've been, I, I just been being very reflective about this stuff lately and getting questions about this because, um, for a long time, I never got asked about, but now I'm coming up on, it's the 20th anniversary in 2021 of, of like the first Fruit Bats record. And, uh, so people, I, I have sort of like looked up and before I knew it, I'm like a veteran and, but that I haven't gone away, but that's not true because it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about moving around a lot. I think maybe that was helpful for me. I was, um, I'm pretty adaptive. Um, I started off, I think, and like we were talking about the sort of indie rock boutique lifestyle early on, I think I set small goals for myself consistently. Um, and I think I just, I kind of stayed in it because of that. I was like, I didn't let it get me down too much, even though there was a lot of losses <laughs> in there too. So, but I, every year it seems like I have one, I've never had the huge thing happen, but every year one tiny thing happens that, um, makes you think, well, I could, I could maybe do this again, but <clears throat> there was definitely tours early on where made no money. Nobody was there for like years, um, where probably most normal people would have, uh, hung them up at the time. But I also have no college education and no, um, <laughs> marketable skills. Either. I'm so, right there um, with you. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, which, which is to say, I don't, I also don't have any college debt or anything like that. So that, that sort of was that I, you know, I have a lot of tour debt, but, um, it's yeah, the I, same thing. I married into college debt. I'm married into $20,000 of debt, which, yeah, there you go. Which we don't pay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what, what so, can, yeah, oh, I, 
You go. No, you go ahead. I was just curious what kept you going in in those times of like bleakness, I guess, where you're just like no one's showing up, and like, how do you keep yourself with the eye on the prize, so to speak? <clears throat> because because there was no prize <laughs> to have my <laughs> like at, at that at that moment, it it really and this. Uh, I mean, and again, wow, I'm like, I'm just keep re-referencing things we've already talked about, but that, that sort of perspective, it's, it's my perspective on it may have shifted. I don't know what my perspective was at the time, but, um, I think I had such a, it was so much just about, okay, there's nobody at this show in Phoenix, but we, it's going to be great in LA tomorrow or something. It was just always sort of about the next, uh, day a little bit, not the, Oh, my career is over and I need to have a number one single. There was just never that, the thought of that. Um, so I think, I think it was just about, uh, setting, setting goals and then resetting them, shrinking them down, building them up. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I never, it's really good to have a big picture thing, but sometimes it's good to shrink yourself down a little bit and just zoom in to, to just getting from Phoenix to LA on that tour there was, <laughs> and selling a couple of t-shirts or something. So there was never this, like, I'm going to be a rock God desire from, um, I think <clears throat> right on my very first, very ill-advised, um, <clears throat> headlining tour, which was in December of 2000. It was either, it was winter 2001, or 2002, it was a long time ago. And we, um, it was really bad. Like we had, we were quote headlining. We had gotten a little bit of good press in, especially like in the British press, um, had gotten some good press and it felt kind of like, and I was, um, you know, my friends at the time were Modest Mouse and the Shins and everybody was just starting to like crush it. And so I did, I remember going on that first tour being like, well, that's going to happen to me kind of just being young and being like, well, this, that's what happens <laughs> to people. Cause I, <laughs> and, um, just had this terrible tour, which, um, it was just terrible. Like the whole thing, no one was there like on any given night. And, uh, and I, um, yeah, I think that was the one moment where I was like, I'm going to be a big, huge rock star. Like, I thought maybe that was going to be my big rock star tour or something because I had just seen, seen it happen three or four times in the past year to other, other uh, peers of mine. Um, but it didn't happen to me, and that was definitely the one where I probably should have quit, should have or could have quit. But that tour, um, <clears throat> like, auspiciously enough, ended in Seattle so I had put that first record out on a small label out of Chicago called Perishable, which was Califone's label. And that Seattle show, two people from Sub Pop showed up to the show um, and were like, hey, we like your band. We're from Sub Pop. So I was able to like, I had this terrible tour and then it literally ended with like this amazing moment of hope. Um, so um, 
Yeah, it was just like that's exactly the type of thing that kept happening. Just just little little tiny things like that. Yeah. You um, can, <clears throat> I mean, you just and then that tour kind of crushed me for for like thinking about being a rock star. That was a good uh, just a just a total moment of humility of just coming home and being like, I'm not going to be a huge rock star, or, <laughs> or maybe not, you know, or if I am, it's it might not be, it's not now. That's for sure. Um, cause my rent was for, I split rent with a girlfriend at the time, 485 a month in Chicago, in Logan square. So two, 200 and something dollars a month. And I could not afford that rent at the time. So I was certainly not a rock star. I couldn't even afford 240 something dollars uh, per month. Man, Chicago rent though. I remember that same scenario of just being like, I had an apartment where I paid one fifty, and it was just like, I mean, it was, you know, there was gunshots and <laughs> same, same with mine. Yeah. But, it, yeah. uh, but I, I was, you know, four doors from a bar, so everything was fine. Was that, and I, cause I sort of relate to that seeing your friends. Cause I worked at second city and a bunch of my friends went to SNL and I went to waiting tables. <laughs> it was just sort of like, fuck like what the fuck and i was like the same where i was like i'm next right like of course i'm next and yeah because you're seeing it happen and it's like you're no you know you're me yeah i don't know i I could tell that like i mean i knew that i wasn't modest mouse like when i saw them play how um how connective it was and it was it rocked to i i knew I, i was like i knew my i had limitations of what what I knew I was capable of as far as like writing or performing. So I was like, I'm truly going to just do what I do and, and hope, hope that, uh, which I, I don't know if that's a, if I could go back and talk to my past self, maybe I would have been like, Hey, maybe try a little harder (laughs) or or try to be like a little more connective or something like that. But, um, but at the, at the time I was sort of working, I felt like I was, um, I was having little bits of good luck and I was working within my, whatever the constructs of what I knew I could do was, I mean, there's just no, I mean, that first Shins record is just like insane. And, um, it's just so good. And it's like, every song's a hit. My first record was not like that. It was much weirder. So, but I just happened to be friends with these people who were doing really well. So I, I understand what you're saying. I think it is the same if you're in comedy or acting and we're all just like, um, it's such a uh, feast or famine universe, um, but if you want to do it, you just kind of keep doing it. Yeah, and like in hindsight, I didn't do a fucking thing to get cast for SNL. <laughs> I never, I didn't learn how to do impressions. Like it was not. I auditioned for it, and it was uh, humiliating because I don't do impressions. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so I was just pulling them out of my ass, and it was. Was Lauren there? Was it? What did you do? The the full on like go to New York and yeah, I yeah. went and did it on the on the where they do the monologue and they make you wait for fucking ever. I think I was there for ten hours. Like I had a call time and then I just sat in my room and then they call you up and I went to the and you know Lauren's. <clears throat> I'm not going to ever work for him, so he's a dick. I can say it. <laughs> like he like pur- purposely snubbed me and. Uh, uh, and I was like, it's not really needed, is it? Like, do you really need to do that? <clears throat> but I mean, whatever. But, but plenty uh, of amazing people didn't make that SNL. I think Jim Carrey uh, didn't make his SNL. Uh, di- there, there's some fairly huge people who uh, 
who had the same experience too. So um, I think so much of it has to, there's probably some kind of cosmic fairy dust with any, as with anything like that, where it's, it might not, again, I, so many people I know who are the most deserving people to be huge stars in some way um, don't make it and vice versa. Um, And then sometimes, sometimes it totally makes sense too. So I don't know, but yeah, cosmic fairy dust. (laughs) Yeah. And I never, like, I just kept doing things. I don't think I ever, I don't, I don't, the the closer I, when I saw friends getting famous, I was like, this looks terrible. Like this looks like a fucking terrible existence. Yeah. Really famous. Being really famous seems scary to me. Um, being, yeah, I don't know. Like, again, I think it, maybe it's part of my small goal setting. I, I always liked the getting uh, paid to create things is like, that really is the, that's the true goal. So, um, and then I've had a good last couple of years after 20 years, I, I'm in no way famous, but I had my best couple of years, the last couple of years. And it's, it's been like, uh, I'm feeling, um, satisfied. And then I'm able to set a little bit of a bigger goal too in the now, because instead of just like, Oh, sell a couple of t-shirts, I can be like, (laughs) all right, I I did that. (laughs) Yeah. But Um, I I mean, your, your, your music's incredible. It's, I mean, I legitimately would say you're great at what you do. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I don't. I didn't have anything I, after that, but I mean, like, but like to me, that's. I don't know. And I, I, everybody I know loves your music, so it's like to me, it's. I've always known of you and Fruit Bats. And there's been it's been a like, and I think there has been a slow. Um, <clears throat> it's been very slow, and the audience who was has been there since day one. Um, is still there, which is kind of awesome because for years it was just sort of like a cult that was ever an ever building cult. And then the past couple of years, I've just had these songs that have broken through with a much younger audience too. So they're there now. And then the same people from before are there. So, um, I think it can be weird if you, if it all happens at once for you and it's, it's literally the, it's a, a sort of a monolithic audience. Um, I've seen that happen for bands. If, if you, if it all happens at once for you and it's in the audience is like, it's all the same people, <laughs> uh, in the audience, it's, it's, it could be, I mean, it could be fine too, but that can be a slippery slope for, um, longevity too. Cause those, some of those people will forget about you, but I've been, yeah, lucky enough to sort of be a, a cult band that sort of caught on as a something else um, later, which is pretty cool. And we'll, I don't know, might all go away <laughs> tomorrow too. <so. laughs> With the younger fans, like, do they discover the newer stuff or is it sort of a mix? Cause that's kind of, they discover the newer stuff because, and, and this is like small sample size, but then this is just what I've viewed playing live is, um, they don't know anything from you can always tell based on audience reaction they don't know anything past they don't they only know the last like couple of records and then when you play the older cuts um they don't know those songs because you can just literally look out and people are singing along or not or you start a song and they go Woo! or um you start it and they they clearly don't know that song so and you can just just tell it so um yeah they're just and i love that because I don't know, like most 
at least most artists like film, like if you're a filmmaker or an album maker or somebody who, who creates some sort of specific uh, bodies of work at, at once like that, of course you want everybody to appreciate the latest thing you've done. Cause that's where you're at in your world. Like um, you never want to hear the like, man, your old stuff is great. I'm not really into the, um, <laughs> do people so, say shit like that? Oh yeah. They say the weird people say the weirdest like drunk dudes at a merch table say the weirdest stuff to you. Cause I go, I go, I used to sell my own merch for years and then now I still, now we have a merch person who sells it, but I go and sign autographs, um, after the show. And, um, it's amazing. I want to make a coffee table book about just weird merch table interactions. Cause I was just thinking that I was like, that should be a book. Cause that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, people say really weird stuff. Um, but yeah, they often say stuff like that. Everybody's a critic, you know, and they'll, they'll say it to you. It's sort of like in the, we're living in also the Twitter, um, the Twitter social media age too, where, um, everybody can say anything to anybody. <laughs> so, um, it's a little bit that too, but I think it's, it's also just drunk people. <laughs> that's, that's the good old fashioned. That's what, see, yeah. I don't, maybe I'm in an, anomaly but like if i discover someone i want to know and if i like it i'm like i want to hear everything they've ever done like i want to learn all of it i don't know if to, maybe that's just people are like yeah and i think plenty of people are like that i don't really care it's like i'm i um i love that i want um <clears throat> in a way um i'm making i make music for myself first and foremost because um you know, we're living inside of our own brains and, and like artists who are not making music for themselves, more power to them, but I don't really understand how, <laughs> how you would do. I just want to make something that I would want to hear, you know, cause you have to live with it. You have to tour with it. So everything I do is, is intensely personal and, and I like it because <laughs> if I didn't like it, I wouldn't be making it. So, um, <clears throat> Yeah, it's if so if if you look if I looked out and saw an audience comprised of myself, um, that would be really cool, <laughs> or people who sort of are, are who really get it or appreciating it for what it is. But that is not you cannot choose that, um, and I think that's a total that's a struggle for a lot of artists, um, m- musical artists especially um, perform, uh, people who are performing on stage because. Um, sometimes you're like, you don't get it. <clears throat> you're not liking it in the way that I want you to like it. And that is to say the, maybe the younger fans who just want to hear the like couple of songs they know, the hits. Um, I remember famously Radiohead would, when Creep came out, would, would open their shows with that song so that all the posers <laughs> would leave. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And it's Radiohead. They've done fine for themselves. So um, you can, you can talk about that now and be like, yeah. And then they, they became Radiohead, so it's fine. So for me, I'm just like, um, I think at this point I'm, I'm very appreciative. Uh, I'm appreciative of anybody liking uh, what I do. Um, and sure, and do I want them to get it in 100% the way that's intended? Of course. But um, yeah, if I can have a sold out show and people are enjoying it all different ways, then that's fine too. Uh, I was thinking, cause you said like a lot of your music is intensely personal, but you also score <laughs> films and I, and I was wondering how, it, what the, what the difference is and like, can you make something that you're scoring for a film personal or is that sort of a different part of the, your creativity you have to access? 
I think you only can if you're scoring like a Paul Thomas Anderson, but you know, like if you're working with some, uh, they're, they're sort of, sort of famously Paul Thomas Anderson. I know with his composers with John Bryan and Johnny Greenwood, he, he has them compose the music. I, this might be apocryphal, but, um, they compose the music first. So probably it. And, and then he sort of works to that. Um, but films, go, but no, it's a, it's like, it's a 100% different muscle that you're using than songwriting ultimately. Um, and I find it really fun and awesome, but it's sort of like it's interpreting a director's brain um, in some way. There, there's like there's a, te- a deeply technical aspect to it. Um, there is a, a diplomatic aspect to it. It's um, it's not personal at all. I always say if someone asks me like um, advice on film scoring or something, I'm like, it's not yours. Um <laughs> That's like the number one rule. Like this music is not yours. Um, You can certainly like make a creative stand and everything like that too. But there's um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird business and I've done a bunch of them and I can't say that I totally know. I, I, there's some basic secrets to it, but I, it's also like totally been different every time too, because you're working with the director, but it's essentially, it's a, like anything, it's a collaboration, but, um, but it's really like, you need to understand that, uh, it's, it's a job too, and that you need to, you need to make the director happy. So, and if you can get in some like little personal things in there, awesome. Like that's a success, but maybe you might not too. Do you try to be as free as possible at first or is the, or uh, I don't know it cuz I, I love film scores I don't know if a lot of people listen to them but I certainly do and I'm like hyper aware of them when I watch films because I'm I love them too. Um yes, and you want to be as free as possible first. So usually how I start is I I um <clears throat> before they're like hopefully if I can get into the project early enough, I just start jamming and giving them stuff and like having them kind of get married to it before they get married to like temp music or something else. Um, but also people with all music, um, respond to immediacy. I think, um, like obviously you can do very well crafted music too. That's like super honed, but I think, um, music is really primal, for a lot of people, it's like one of the most primal art forms. Um, so yeah, I try to be as free as possible with scores at first and, um, and, you know, you hopefully sort of win them over with, um, with more immediacy uh, and melody or, or whatever it, or, or sort of tones rather than some kind of, you, you're not going to give them some deeply honed to picture thing right out of the gates. So yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I've learned so much from it because when you get done with a film score, you go to write a song, it's like, it's, you know, it's the most freeing <laughs> feeling, you know? but it's, it's good. It's like this, it's just like a, it's a total exercise. Yeah, it's interesting because certain film scores tend to, especially like horror films, like they indicate what's going to happen. And I'm always, it always takes me out, but that's got to be hard to create something. I don't know, that builds tension without indicating, oh, someone's going to get killed or they give you the old bait, tension bait and switch. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the director's job to sort of decide they tell you what to do there. You know, I mean, you, you can certainly make decisions, but for the most part they're they might say like, we don't want this score to say, tell you anything or hit it here. You know, we need this 
we need this here. So they direct you just like they would direct an actor. Um, so with, with varying levels of, you know, varying levels of, uh, caring or letting you go. And it's just, it's a little push and pull thing. Yeah. I did, to back up, did when you, cause you toured with the shins and I, I didn't, uh, until very recently, I didn't know you toured with Caliphone as well. How did you end up working yeah. with Caliphone? Caliphone was my first thing I ever did. And that was, that was the thing that, uh, just straight up set my life in motion. Um, was I was working when you lived in Chicago, did you ever know the, did you know the old town school of folk music? Yeah. I saw cat power there and nice. <laughs> I can't remember. It was um, just her though. Solo. I think I may have been the house manager that night. Oh really? That show us. Yeah. So I worked at the old town school. I, I worked various jobs there over the years. It was a great place to work. They were very encouraging of like, it was just a great, like <clears throat> I, you know, I had worked um, like food service jobs and stuff before delivered pizzas and uh, worked as a barista and stuff. And then ended up taking a banjo class there and kind of falling into getting a job there um, through my banjo teacher. And then, um, just kind of wormed my way into is the great kind of place that like once you got in, you could sort of explore different gigs there. And I, so I, I worked like every conceivable job and I, <clears throat> I had one student in one, and then I ended up was teaching classes there too. And I had one student in my class who was friends with Caliphone and they needed like a very last minute person to come on tour to be the sort of multi-instrumentalist harmony singer. And she recommended me. And I think I got chosen because I kind of was a nobody. <laughs> um, and I think because the previous guy had, <clears throat> there had been some guy that they had hired, but he pulled some kind of weird move, I guess that where he was like, cause they were going on tour with modest mouse where he's like, but I want my band to open to like, he kind of, <laughs> I guess he, he did some kind of uh, thing that, that Tim, I'm really, I don't, I don't know all the truth of this because this was sort of, this is sort of hearsay, but that he had sort of overstepped some kind of bounds with those guys and tried to, tried to like muscle his way into their universe in some kind of weird way. So that I think they, they ended up like bailing on him and they needed someone very last minute. And I think I probably came across as very unambitious and <laughs> sort of shy and retiring. And they, <clears throat> They were like, this guy's perfect. And I was really, I was 10 years younger than all of them um, and kind of willing to work for nothing. And uh, that, I had done very little before that. And then it was like, that tour was opening for Modest Mouse right when they had been signed to Epic. <clears throat> the first of three opener for half the tour was The Shins. I basically sort of, I had never like really left the Midwest barely. I saw the whole country went everywhere that I'd never been, um, met everyone in like the sort of burgeoning West coast indie rock world. And, and would just completely like I drank it all in and my life got completely set on course. Like it was this five week tour. It's super life changing. Wow. That's wild. Did that influence <clears throat> the any of the way you started uh, approaching your own touring and songwriting, did that have any influence on, in that department? Yeah, they all do because it's like, if you're this, it was, it's sort of like, I didn't, like we said, we, I didn't have college or anything. So it, that was my, <clears throat> it's just, it's always an education and you sort of see how it's done and maybe, or, and then you try it yourself <clears throat> and you fail 
or you adjust things how you thought your the people you were learning from it you're like oh, i'm, I'm going to do it a little bit differently but this is how it works those type of tours I, it's always good if you if you can do it and and tour as like a side man in somebody's band i've talked about it with kevin morby a lot too who played in woods when he was really really young even younger than i was in california but you just um <clears throat> just seeing the, the sort of machinations of of how it all works and and it's sort of just like a the, the, that whole thing was a a proof of concept to me because i didn't have any clue how to do it before and that it was even possible. It was just that it, it could, it may as well have been going to the moon. And then you see like, Oh, well there's like a, there's booking agents and maybe you can get one of those. And, and then you put together a band, but you got to have a van and you just see all the dumb little weird things of how it was. <laughs> it's <laughs> relatively simple, but, um, but kind of not, you know, but you, you just see how it works and that it's possible. And that that's what it was. That's what that was beyond, beyond the fact that I, I made some really lasting friends who were having a moment too, which really helped. But also beyond that, it was just, um, yeah, proof of concept. And then later being in shins was kind of the same thing, but just on this more epic scale where you're like, Oh, this is proof of concept that there's a, there's this kind of huge way you can do things too. And, and, um, but that, yeah, those playing as a side guy in other people's bands has always been important to me and in the learning process. I've just, this is my own nerdy, bullshit but when did you tour with the, it was the second album right that you toured because then with the shins there's um it was the third one after shoots two it was wincing the night away after shoots too narrow so um they had uh put out oh inverted world had a really and this is back when we were all friends um sort of from the beginning so they had put oh inverted world and my first record came out like the same month or something in 2001 right at the same time we had toured together fruit bats and shins and then um then shoots too narrow came out and then the garden state soundtrack happened sometime right. after that and it was just like everything really like they had been doing kind of well in this indie way and then everything just went into the stratosphere all of a sudden and so they wanted like uh and, and then i was touring with them as their merch person for a while because i was broke um and so <laughs> And I was like, can I sell merch for you? So that was, I was selling merch for them for a little while and they knew they liked hanging out with me. And then um, a couple of years later, they were just looking for like a, they were looking for a fifth person who um, could just play most instruments. And I think most importantly could sing those harmonies over the top of James, which not a lot of people can do, but I can. So I was just wondering if um, I saw you because I feel like that's around the time I saw the shins or maybe I bought a shirt from you, but I, at the Fonda in L.A., but I don't know. If that... I don't think I ever played the Fonda with them. I was in that band from 2006 to 2010. Yeah, it's around that time, but maybe not. I just would be funny if you helped me to my seat at the Old Town School of <laughs> like <laughs> I that very we've well handled. Yeah, and we probably yeah. maybe drank in some of the same bars in Chicago because you're a crafty yeah. guy. I read that you like spotted cow, which I just had. My father-in-law brought me a case of New Glarus. Yeah, I like all the beer. <laughs> <laughs> I have some old style. If you want to come over. Yeah, That's I like not, that too. Oh, you have old style, nice. <laughs> yeah, they brought, they drove out here from Chicago and they brought me a case, a mixed case of New Glarus and then a case of old style and nice. So, but my town, I live in Monrovia and we have four breweries in town. 
three, three or no, we have four breweries. And when they all opened around roughly around the same time. So there was a brief period where none of my fucking shirts fit. Cause I was, (laughs) 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 uh, I, I, how did uh, Bonnie Light Horseman come together? Because I, I found that interesting that you started what it's like to start a, another band just out of, I, I don't know, not out of the blue, but how that sort of came about and how that... <clears throat> um, it came about because um, Josh Kaufman and I have been good friends for, I don't know, ten, the past 10 years or so. <clears throat> um, he had been in this band Yellowbirds, who I loved, which is led by my friend Sam Cohen, who's amazing too. And it was just this kind of group of uh, friends that I had, a New York musician friends that I had made that's just like this incredible group of people who are um, all kind of starting to get their due now. But I I felt at the time where it was like the most unsung group of musical geniuses on the planet. And I, I was just like, how are these why are these people opening for me? Just a bunch, just a bunch of New York people who were badasses, basically who I kind of fell in love with. Um, and Josh was one of them and he and I kept in contact. And then we started doing these alone and together tours, um, for a while, which was, um, Sam Cohen and Kevin Morby and I sort of doing this, uh, songwriter in the round thing with Josh Kaufman and Joe Russo as the rhythm section. Elvis Perkins did it with us sort of this fun little weird collaborative touring project. And so Josh and I got even closer on that, but I just found out that he was um, working on this folk project with Anais Mitchell, which was, who was a person that I had never met, but we had just sort of become internet buds, which is just a weird thing of how the world works now, but (laughs) we had met on the internet. And then um, I knew this was 2017, I guess. I knew that in 2017, I had a plan of, I wanted to get back into something folkier because it had been a while. I wanted to like dust the old banjo off and I wanted to do something, uh, collaborative. And so it, it turned out he's doing this like collaborative folky thing (laughs) with the Nas Mitchell. And I, I fully just invited myself to be in the band. And then, um, and then, uh, it's been really crazy because I, it took me like forever with brute bats to get, sort of something going but that this Bonnie White Horseman band people just like freaked out over it um which was awesome and it's like really my first time being like the prom queen <laughs> or something in, in any project that I've done you know like where it just kind of worked out of the gate you know, like when sort of talking back to 2004 or three and four when I'm like all my friends were like doing really well right out of the gates with their projects and that didn't happen with me this is um my first time getting to experience that to some extent and granted we didn't really see what the basically so we yeah we put this record out earlier this year we didn't really get to see the potential of it necessarily because of covid so but it's yeah it's it's been really fun and i and i love them so How, did you have any <clears throat> did you expect that a grammy was coming or was that something to, a grammy nomination which has got to be just mind-blowing right <laughs> it's pretty mind blowing. Um, and I know, I think, I feel like when we made that record and we finished it, cause we made it in this really, really cool, but very crazy way. Cause we made it at this artist, um, artist in residency thing in Berlin, like, or at least a, a large portion of it. And it was sort of done in this really weird 
very jet lagged kind of hurried state. Um, and then we had a sort of a two day session in Woodstock, New York, um, a couple winters ago of finishing it up and we didn't have time to really think about what it, what was happening with it. Um, and then when we kind of came out the other side and heard it, we were like, Oh, this is really good. <laughs> and this is, and we kind of did think like, this is, I think people are going to like be into this. <clears throat> I always think that though, when I make records, so it's, it's sort of hard. You, you always like, you're always striving to make the best thing you can. I, <laughs> I never making something to half ass it either, but this one had a certain kind of special quality to it. And I think partly cause it's collaborative. I'm able to, I can, I can kind of look at it uh, from a little more of the out inside and the outside at the same time. But, but no, we, we, I don't think we thought it would get Grammy nominations, but maybe we kind of thought it was a little special, <laughs> but, but again, they're always kind of special. So I don't know. How, what it, it, do they, is the Grammys going to be like by zoom? How do they, how are they going to do that? And doesn't it? Yeah. It sucks. I wanted to go. Yeah. I thought it would be so fun to go. <clears throat> um, and I actually did get to go when she, cause shins were nominated for a Grammy when I was in the band. Um, but, but I, I hadn't made that record either. I didn't feel like as much a part of it. Whereas this is like a record I made, you know, this is like my band. Um, and like the, one of the songs that we're nominated for is like, it's a song that I sang and everything. It's, it feels totally crazy, but I, um, yeah, I, it's like the Grammys are a funny thing where I didn't, um, I never thought that I would be nominated for one. And I probably had a cynical view of them at some point too, because, um, it's a weird, I don't know. <laughs> I, a, I never any, I, it's never any of my favorite records are Grammy nominated on any given year for the most part. And I'm not saying that in a way of like, cause I'm so cool, but, um, just w- whatever the value is of those, um, I'm sure there is, but I, I've never, um, I never like, thought much of them but then it's a really cool it's just a cool thing for your mom basically when you get nominated for a grammy yeah even if uh, even if like i always poo poo the oscars and not that i'm gonna ever do anything that's gonna get me (laughs) near that but i'm like i would be out of my fucking mind if i got that and but the grammys do seem kind of like sometimes they seem a wee like when they have like best new artist i'm like that's not a new artist (laughs) that's like yeah i forget who they did that with i I was like I say I have this like past cynicism about them, but I'm, but I like also feel really stoked and, and it's just, it's a weird, crazy thing that I never really imagined. And I felt like, uh, I felt like this year it was just crazy because for the first time in my life, I, well, I got nominated for a Grammy and then like other people I know did too. It's my first time on like Grammy nomination day texting with like, people that I know that being like, congratulations. Or I was like, how is it possible that I have a Grammy nomination? And so do a bunch of other people, uh, on my very first, that terrible tour that I talked about in 2001 or two, the other band that played with us was uh, this band, the court and spark played with us in uh, LA and San Francisco for those sh- like totally empty shows. And, and that's Mike Taylor from his golden messengers old band. And he got nominated for a Grammy. And I like texted him. I was like, dude, <laughs> We both just got nominated for Grammys today and we're both like in our mid forties and have just kind of been trucking along 
at this at a similar pace for years. So it it felt like in a way somehow my my group of friends got got invited to the party this year, um, which is funny because there doesn't get we don't get to have actually have a party. So um, is yeah. that were you just like in a complete daze when you found that it, like. Did you expect you were going to get nominated or is that just like, then you hear it and then you're just like sort of in shock all day? Cause I can't imagine it's anything short of being in shock. There was enough of a little, um, there was enough of a vibe around that record that more than anything I've ever done, I thought maybe. And also I think a huge, um, boon to getting nominated is that we're working in such a specific genre with that record. Whereas like with a, let's say a fruit bats record or something, um, and not that I've, I've never felt anywhere close to getting a Grammy nomination with Fruit Bats, but it would be, we exist in a gray area of genre too, whereas the Bonnie Horseman record is, is very folky. Like it, it has sort of this, um, it has a sort of this um, historical mission statement behind it a little bit. It, I mean, we, we didn't set a mission statement, but it's, it, um, it, it works really well in that folk category. So we maybe had an inkling of a feeling of it, but I remember, let's just say I knew the day of the Grammy nominations is never like a day. I know <laughs> I'm never like, it's never on my calendar. <laughs> like it's the Grammy nominations day. I'm going <laughs> to, let's see if I get nominated for something. I've never uh, thought that. And then this year I did kind of have it on the calendar. Cause I was like, oh, maybe, maybe That's that one's going to get, get one. So this is sort of a, I don't know what kind of question this is, but the other day, my I was playing a uh, humbug mountain song. I hope I got that correct because I'm an idiot with yeah, titles. That's and, correct. That's the correct <laughs> title and, and, and names. I often like I have nieces and nephews who I am, am panic when I'm around them because I'm like I'm not sure what your name is. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just call you Guy and skip. <laughs> uh, but my daughter started dancing. She's seven months. She started dancing to it, and it's like. There was one other song like a week ago that she's, I was like, is she dancing? But she was undeniably dancing to it. And I was like, I, I was wondering if that's something that you are aware of. Like, oh, my music is like that song now is attached to me for the rest of my life because of that moment. And is that something that ever enters your head? Like, oh, people dance to my song at a, at a wedding or well, first off, that's adorable. Um, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's my goal and, for uh, my podcast is to make it adorable. <laughs> yeah, um, and then, um, yeah, and that, yes, uh, it, it it does blow my mind, and uh, I'm thankful for it. You know, of just of just that's that's crazy that I write music and people dance to it, and it makes them feel something, and it creates memories. It's like. I don't know. That's the coolest thing imaginable. I don't, I don't want to get all like hashtag blessed about it. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, but that's, I mean, geez, that's what it's all about. Yeah. That's, I I love it. I love that. Yeah. I I mean, I'm solely an admirer and a fan of music. So to me, there's all these songs that are definitive moments and they take you back to that moment when you hear them. And that to me, it's like, it's like you're, like on a, you're an alchemist or you're a magician <laughs> it's music is alchemy i always think like i i um because i'm not steely dan or something making I, i've gotten better into really 
crafting things more as I've got just learn more about music because I, I have no like trained, I have no training or background or anything, but, but at the same time, um, kind of talking about that immediacy thing that I was talking about with film scores is just like, it's always the humbug mountain song, which is like a whole lot of nothing. That song, um, is, uh, it's one of my most tossed off songs. Um, and that's my biggest song by like, lot lot and when you love somebody which is from 2003 kind of the same but those are the two songs that just like they're just nothing (laughs) and uh but and i don't mean that in a bad way i just mean from a from like a craft perspective um they did they were not i did not agonize over those songs they were they just kind of came out pretty fully baked and um i think people can sense that but that's that's music um it is it's kind of an electricity that it, it it does exist out in the ether somehow and um yeah not to get all hippie but <laughs> yeah uh, i think i think people kind of just they they tap into that electricity and uh music's awesome <laughs> it's yeah it's something that is it's it's a weird art form that's that's easy to make and and hard to make at the same time yeah i <clears throat> It's a, when you la- when when something is like takes more crafting, do, uh, I don't really know where I'm going <laughs> with this. But I was like, from my experience, like I wrote on a TV show, and the, there would be the stuff that I had to work the hardest at. That I was like, while I was struggling with it, I was like, oh, this is going to be a piece of shit. Always turned out to be my better thing than the, the, the things that just flowed out of me. Not to say that those weren't quality, but I I don't know. Just, yeah does that make sense i was just wondering if there's any it makes total sense yeah um yeah and it's like and but of course things that are these magnum opus moments are amazing and everything too and um but yeah it's not to say you that everybody should just go fart out a song and it'll be (laughs) a huge hit (laughs) so i'm but I'm, i'm certainly saying from my end the songs that make uh children dance are the the ones that um have this sort of most humble uh the most humble game plan. Um, well, I, I want to thank you for your time. And but, uh, before, is there anything I'm, I'll put all things that are, are you in the uh, show notes so people can find them easily. Is there anything that I could possibly, that I would vague or something I could be missing that you would want to plug or is Bandcamp and your websites and all that at the, cover it no i don't have anything right now i just made a new fruit bats record but it's not out till march so um i'm just uh yeah just band camp and websites and and all that and and everything is like right now with all that stuff that's so helpful for a musician that everyone's always like how can i help and it's just like buy merch and go on band camp and do all the do do the things you're doing it's been i don't know oh that's been rough times for a lot of my peers yeah it's uh i have a music friend who's facing some real and he's like a guy with millions of streams and on spotify and i'm like spotify don't do it man you gotta can't fucking do it yeah Um, that was this is totally random but like you had an album that uh, come out in 2020 and the label is lawrence welk's family label yeah so that album that's album's confusing to people because that's actually an album from 2016 um 
that's a that's an album that was sort of like a sidecar album to the absolute loser sessions so those are a lot of songs that that was that was a record store day vinyl only release that came out on record store day november 2016 and just got a digital release so it's not really like a that's a, I mean, I'm, it's a cool record, but it's, it's more of a quote collection, I guess you could say. But yes. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I saw the Welk name and I was like, is this owned by Lawrence Welk's family? So I had a couple of records get put out by this label, this sort of smallish LA based label called easy sound, um, that a friend of mine ran, but yeah, it was the parent company of it was the Welk music group, which is indeed Lawrence Welk's, uh, family. I'm a, I, I don't think a lot of guys my age say this but i'm a lawrence welk fan (laughs) my grandma loved lawrence welk and lawrence welk was like you know he had his shows and stuff but he was also like a business genius famously so like we were the label was originally part of vanguard records and really i didn't know that on van yeah there's like if you look him up he he owned a bunch of there's like um yeah there's a whole Lawrence Welk uh, music industry thing that uh, has nothing to do with Lawrence Welk other than he was just a smart guy that who knew how to do business. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because he's so just unassuming and modest on that show, and it's like I own shit tons of California. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true, and the part of the Dodgers, and yeah, so. I, I just wonder if secretly he was like this real cutthroat, vicious guy, <laughs> or if he was Maybe? just, I'm a nice guy who buys things and knows what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. It was like that generation was such a such a bootstrappy old <laughs> old grandpa kind of thing to do. <laughs> I think that's why I like it too, because my grandparents watched it, so it's just nostalgia. And I'm, but I, yeah, some of it's same. really good. Like I own a bunch of it. But anyway, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. glad we could end on a Lawrence Welk note. <laughs> yes, always. That's how I always like to end things. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Eric. I, I really greatly appreciated your time and, and, and for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Don't you... Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with The Wire. Please become a Patreon subscriber. If you like, also subscribe to the show on your iTunes or what have you not, and tell your friends about the show. That would mean a lot to me. As well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or com or Conversations with Dwyer at the Instagram, and you could learn more about the show, buy merch, and all those great things. Thank you very much for listening.